Welcome to Conversations of the Strange. Conversations of the Strange. for another episode of Conversations of the Strange. I am Don Everett Smith Jr. and I am your host. I am on the phone with a friend of mine who I've known for a number of years. He is an investigator on this side of life and on the next side of life. However, we're going to focus in on a book that he wrote dealing with an investigation that occurred on this side of life. And I am on the phone with Michael J. Warden. He is the founder of Sisu Books. He is also the co-host of my favorite podcast, Next to Conversations of the Strange. And in fact, one of the reasons why Conversations of the Strange exist is because of his podcast, Murder in the Hudson Valley. And I am on the phone with Michael J. Warden. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. I got to tell you, this is an honor. I feel like I'm talking to one of my heroes right now. Actually, I am t- talking to one of my heroes, if you pardon the brown nosing slightly there. Thank, thanks, Don. I'm glad to have, have be on your show today and looking forward to talking to you about this. And I know we've talked a lot, you know, off um, – offline, I guess, yeah. about crime and true crime. So it's a passion of mine. I know it is certainly a passion of yours. So this will be fun. Yeah. And it's literally um, what you have dedicated your life to. Uh, you are a sergeant in the Port Jervis Police Department. And I would be completely remiss if I did not ask about what's going on in your police department uh, in lieu of everything that is happening with the coronavirus and COVID-19. I want to ask, how are you guys doing? Are you staying safe? And what can we as citizens, whether it's in Port Jervis or our neck of the woods or wherever it is that we're located, what can we do to just kind of help out, um, help out the police department? Uh, do you guys need thumbs up for us? Thank you cards. Thank you letters. What is it you, what can we do to help make your lives a little bit easier? You know, it's kind of an odd time for policing. You know, I've been a cop for 21 years. It's the first time I've ever seen anything close to this. You know, we're we're mandated to wear masks now in the station even. Mm. You know, that's something completely different. We're wearing masks in public. You're wearing masks when you pull people over because it's still – you still have to do your job. You know, we can't right. stop enforcing the laws. You know, you still have to pull people over for committing traffic violations the officers are still making arrests when they, you know, are required to make arrests. Um, but it's a different, you know, to think a year ago if someone said, yeah, you're going to be wearing, you know, mask over your faces and goggles when you print somebody, you would have thought, oh, no, that's insanity. But it's almost the new norm today. Um, you know, we're disinfecting things on a regular basis, which normally we do anyway. You know, you try to spray and keep right. things clean. But now it's become a very regimented um I think someone must have a a stock in Lysol or one of those disinfectants because we go through it like I couldn't imagine. Right. Um, But, you know, the best thing people can do is just limit their time outside, you know, social distance, and really just don't bother, you know, don't create more work for the police than we don't have to. You know, people need to stay home, stay off the roads, um, because the biggest concern for any police agency is – 
police officers in a department catching this and then contaminating their coworkers. Right. So that there, you know, theoretically, it could cripple police departments. Right. My dad, um, before beforehand, with all this COVID nineteen stuff, he was telling this story that my um, grandfather would jokingly do. My grandfather was a mechanic, and he would. Um, start at a new job and so he would say to the people uh here's what i want you to do you don't have to pay me just pay me a penny a day when we for that first week and then just double it and then just start that all over again just double it so monday one cent tuesday two cents wednesday four cents thursday eight cents friday 16 cents and after about 26 days when you keep doing that it gets into the millions of dollars at that point. So the uh, manager of the garage would sit there and do it up, and he would call and like, uh, John, come here, we need to talk. This isn't going to work. <laughs> and my dad was comparing how COVID-19 could work like that, where one person comes in not feeling well, they infect two, a second person, if, they're, if that's all it is. And then the next day, two becomes four, then then eighth and sixteen and so forth. So yeah, this is a really scary time, and I can understand why it would be that way for the police department. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, we're we're muscling through it, and um, we we come in, we do our job, and you know, that's all we can do. And you know, it's a dangerous job to begin with. So the the COVID nineteen is just a new threat that we have to face on top of all the other dangers that that we encounter on a regular basis, anyway. Right, right, exactly. Well, <laughs> let's talk about. <laughs> well, that, it's it's a sad situation, but let's go talk about something uh, also sad, and that's murder. And you wrote a very fascinating murder or, or story about a murder of a person by the name of Richard Jennings that occurred in Goshen Sugarloaf area of uh, Hudson Valley, New York, uh, back in eighteen eighteen or eighteen nineteen. Uh, 1818 was the homicide. Okay, was the okay was the homicide. Okay, and and I want to jump to the end because obviously we're using the word murder and people are executed for this. And I did a little research um, before I started talking before I called you tonight, and I wanted to pull out something from the Evening Post of New York, April eight to um, April twenty first, eighteen nineteen. And this was from a reporter who sent it in, and he sent it into the newspaper, and then this is what he writes. Uh, Goshen in Orange County, April 17th. The reporter says, yesterday I witnessed the execution of James Teed and David Dunning, who were condemned to be hung for the murder of old Mr. Jennings. A solemn and awful scene it was. The crowd was very great. Upward of 12,000 persons were supposed to be present. At the toll of the bell about 11 o'clock, the prisoners were brought out of the jail, guarded to the gallows by a company of horses. They appeared quite calm and undaunted, and this is where I was kind of, like, my stomach turned. They appeared quite calm and undaunted until they saw their coffins when they were both appalled and wept bitterly. Teed could not walk without assistance. After they arrived at the place of execution and ascended the scaffold, clergy prayed with them, and at five minutes past two o'clock, they were turned off, meaning they were 
uh, they were hung. Uh, um, was it uh, the typical trapdoor type of gallows, or was it the what we were talking about earlier, where they get jerked up by weights falling type of gallows? So there's never been any account that actually described the gallows. I have a, a woodcut of the hanging, and it shows what looks like more of a traditional gallows. So right. when I think... I think when they say they were turned off, it was probably a short drop. You know, the rope was right. was you know thrown up over the gallows. It was loosely slack, and they probably either had a, a simple trap mechanism or something that they you know literally kick a bucket out from under you, a right. stool or something. I don't think it was anything really overly complicated. It had to be purposely built because there hadn't been a hanging in Orange County since you know the end of the Revolutionary War. Right. Right. And right before the, uh, right before, uh, yeah, it says they were turned off almost without a struggle into eternity. T denies that he ever had the gun or struck Jennings, but he still deserved to die. And then afterwards, it gives a whole uh, statement by the sheriff. Um, and in a previous episode of Murder in the Hudson Valley, which I'm going to have a link for, you guys go into greater detail about what led up to the murder and everything associated with that. But to paint a picture for listeners that are not familiar with what, uh, with where Goshen and the Sugarloaf Orange County area is, where about is that located in relationship to New York City? So we're in Orange County, New York. So the, the murder site was in Sugarloaf, which is the area around Warwick, New York, Chester, mm-hmm. New York, and... So we're about maybe, you know, what, 75 to 80 miles that would be from New York City. Um, just uh, take the throughway up to the 17 and 17 to, to Chester, to Goshen, and you're at all these relevant sites. It's really not that far from New York. Right. So I would imagine that would probably be like a day's journey back in 1819 or something like that, uh, like to go back on horseback or something. It was probably, I would suspect, a day to two days because there is – one of the suspects actually fled to New York City and had to be um, followed, which um, was one of the things in the book which amazed me. You know, they followed him from there all the way down to New York City in, you know, 1819. Right. 18, or 1818, excuse me, the end of 1818. Right. So in Goshen, was Goshen, Goshen, I imagine, was a farming community. It was a pretty, pretty, like, like nothing bad ever happened here. Richard Jennings aside type of place like a very small even small town like and we're only 50 years uh, yeah we're little not even 50 years past the American Revolution at this point yeah Goshen Orange County itself had a population of about 20,000 in the 1820 census that kind of puts it in perspective on how how spread out people were it was a farming type of community most people farmed you know you you raised your crops, you brewed whiskey, you know, you did the things that that was just very common for that time period. Right. You're dealing with a group of people that within their lifetime, they probably didn't go more than anywhere from like 50 to 60 miles. Yeah. Uh, That that would have been rare. Yeah. 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 So, and so like we're dealing with, so it's very farming community. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, and I want to just kind of do this very quickly. There was a guy by the name of uh, Jacobus Teed, and he had a wife named Phoebe. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. Jacobus ends up leaving X amount of land for for his family, 
Um, however, and he leaves it for his son named James. James, on the other hand, uh, he was able to collect 50 acres, but not until mom passed away. And James was having a hard time financially, so he said, hey, mom, can I get a couple of those acres now so that I can pay off the bills? And that's when this gentleman named Richard Jennings, just out of nowhere, just kind of steps into the picture. Am I correct? Yeah, so um, one of the, the hardest pieces for me to wrap my mind around initially with this case was the interrelationships between all the players. So Phoebe is married to Jacobus Teed, and Jacobus had incurred some debt during life, which his son James uh, worked diligently to pay off. Right. So he was sort of felt slighted when the will came out and his father left all the property to the mother. However, the father did set aside a specific 50-acre lot for James, but there was a condition that it would only be given to him upon his mother's death. Right. Now, at some point, James runs into some financial trouble, and you got to remember, in 1818, or this is actually even a few years before that, um, if you couldn't pay your debts, you could be sent to debtor prison. Right. You could go to jail. So... He um, approaches his mom and says, you know, listen, obviously I need to, to pay off some debts. Can I get the land? And his mom being like probably any other mom would do said, sure. Well, her and this is where it gets really weird. Her brother is Richard Jennings. Oh, interesting. So she was Phoebe Jennings before yes. she got married. OK, that explains that. So this is this is his uncle that intervenes to somehow contest not just the giving the land to James, but ultimately gets his sister to give him not just the 50 acres, but the entire teed um, parcel of land, which was quite sizable from what I can understand. I can't get a specific size, mm -hmm. but, you know, if 50 acres was set aside, there was quite a bit of other land. You know, there was a house, there was other buildings in the property, there was farmland. So somehow, and this is where it's not clear because there's no records that I've been able to get thus far from the courts that they have been able to find right. on the how he did it, but he manages to do that, and that starts this back-and-forth legal battle between James Teed and his uncle Richard. Right. Now, is there a chance that the Teed family themselves could have owed, or Jacobus owed his debt to Richard Jennings? Is there any chance that that was part of that as well? And Richard said, you know what? I can get this big plot of land. Uh, like, I can get this big plot of land, and I can kind of, bat, like, I can manipulate my sister into giving it to me, and then I can do whatever the heck I want to with it. Um, I've never found anything to, to indicate that. Um, Richard Jennings was much older. Right. You know, he... He was Apparently, like 70s. he was in his seventies at this. Point. He was in his seventies, um, and he didn't really even have a permanent residence. He he sort of just bounced around between homes of his family members and friends. Um, so he may have had like a cabin or something that's never indicated. Mm -hmm. But so you know when he goes missing in December of eighteen eighteen, no one really thinks anything of it for a few days because he would typically go and s spend time somewhere else. Right now. There are five people that have it in for Richard Jennings, and I, and I was wondering if you could explain who those five people are besides James Teed, who directly is, like, he, he's, 
like he's kind of ground zero for this, if I'm correct. He's like ground zero. Like I am really angry at this person. And I was wondering if you could talk about the other four people that were involved with this. Yeah. So James Teed is the initial, um, I guess, you know, antagonist here or protagonist, however you want to look at it. Um, He brings his brother-in-law into the, into the mix. His brother-in-law was from a very prominent family in Orange County, David. And it's unclear again, you know, they didn't really specify a lot of this in the accounts I found, but hopefully I get the the court records and there'll be a second edition, but he somehow manages to get his brother-in-law involved by giving him the property. Right, David so Conkling. Now that, David Conkling. Right so, that, yeah. right, so that drags David Conkling in. Now, David Conkling, his, his, he's married to Hannah Teed. That's James's sister. Right. So that's how the connection is between the Conklings and the Teeds. Now, living with the Teeds is another family, the family of David Dunning. He's basically a tenant farmer. He lives right. on their property. He farms his land their friends he gets pulled into this as more of an accessory and I kind of I think if you read through the story you kind of see where I, how I feel about David Dunning but the most fascinating character is Jacob Hodges right. an African American who lives with David Conkling and his family he's also a tenant farmer and he kind of works for David Conkling um, he's also very loyal to Conkling they're, there's, they're more friends than I would say landlord, tenant, or, you know, employer, employee. Right. He And let me just say for the record, he was not a slave. He was a free man. The two of He them, was a free man. Yeah, the two of them was yep. just kind of like, he was just, he just happened to think that David Conkling was the best boss on the planet type of thing. Yeah, there was, there was an intense loyalty there, and it's unclear why that was. Um, I think David Conkling was good to him. You know, he, he made sure he, he had land to take care of. He made sure he was employed and had security. And I think that's where that loyalty came from. Gotcha. So anyway, so going back and forth, and one of the things that I thought was so funny and that you mentioned in the podcast, which everybody should listen to, I like to, I'm going to be bold and say, I'd like to think that this episode of Conversations of the Strange is a companion piece to the episode that you and Linda Zimmerman did on the Richard Jennings uh, murder, where one of the things that you talked about was they like if Richard Jennings owed a five dollar debt to somebody, uh, James Teed would buy that debt for ten dollars and then turn around and try and sue Richard Jennings for that debt. And if he couldn't pay the debt, send him into get send him into debtor's prison. Like they were doing everything they possibly can. Like it, it's gone from just being we're in a legal battle to we're now at the point where we're spray painting on the sides of the house going, going your mother's ugly and dresses you funny at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was reading about that, to me, it showed the level of animosity because, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, you know, why would, what's, how can this be so willing to kill someone over 50 acres? But then you realize the 50 acres really became, in the background of this, this became such a personal, intimate mm. fight between the, the parties involved where they would literally, oh, he owes you five dollars. Here, let me buy the debt for ten just so I can demand five dollars from Richard Jennings. Right. And then when Richard couldn't pay, he'd obviously go to the county jail until he could pay the debt. And 
of course, that would fuel Richard Jennings on. And, you know, towards the end, it becomes, you know, such a tit for tat over the taking wood from the lot, even just to aggravate Richard Jennings. I right, mean, right. So, and now at this point in time, James Teed, along with Hannah Teed, James Hodges, oh, I'm sorry, did I get the right? Jack Hodges. Jack. Jack. Yeah, Jack Hodges, David Dunning, and David Conkling. Uh, they all get together, and at this point in time, they become conspirators, for lack of a better phrase. Am I correct yeah. on that? Yeah, so in the fall of 1818, the circuit court makes a final determination. They're, I think they're sick of the back-and-forth lawsuits. They say Richard Jennings is the rightful owner of that property, but he has to wait till the winter term of the court to apply for the writ of possession. So basically the court said it's yours, but you can't have it till the beginning of the year. So what happens is now the Teeds, he's basically told the Teeds, you're being kicked off your land. I'm kicking you all out. Um, although he does tell David Dunning, I'm going to let you stay because I don't have a problem with you. Right. David Dunning and, and Richard Jennings never seem to have any animosity, but there does become a point where the conspirators David Conkling believes he's about to lose everything. The Teeds are going to definitely lose everything. And they believe the only way to rectify the situation is that they have to kill Richard Jennings. And that's what the conspiracy is born at. You know, they decide we're going to kill him and we're going to have Jack Hodges. He's going to do it. And we're going to pay him $1,000, which is quite a bit of money back in 1818. Right. And did they have that money? <laughs> well, that's what I like to point out in the, is the book is – I don't even think they had close to that much money. <laughs> right. But so that's the conspiracy is born. And, and, I, you know, there is some, I don't want to say there's some contradictions as to what really happened. Right. Depending upon what the official record says and then what later accounts um, from Jack Hodges say. Right. I have my, I have my opinions on that. Um, right. And but we want to hear them. We want to hear them. Seriously. Yeah, definitely. And, you know. But ultimately, they agree we're gonna we're gonna kill Richard Jennings, right. and we're gonna do it before the end of the year because right. we don't want him taking possession of the land because he's gonna kick us out. We're homeless. Right. That's it. Right. Now let me ask this though, um, and I'm gonna add the racial component into this because obviously there is one. But what's kind of crazy about this is is that Jack Hodges, an African American man who could have been a slave. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the states, they didn't, um, or the northern states, they didn't start outlawing slavery until like, late, I know that New Jersey didn't do it until like the 1840s. Like they officially said, no more slaves. And there were a lot of free states and everything. And it's not like, come, it's not like a lot of these people were known for slavery at this time. Eventually it just kind of were, you know, we'll stop doing slaves at this point. But do you think, um, Hodges, Hodges, who becomes, for lack of a better phrase, the gunman on this, and they were training him, because you mentioned that he was trained on how to use a musket, and they were the ones training him how to do that, and James apparently also had war experience, because he served in uh, the War of 1812, so which makes sense of that he would know how to use a musket and train another person. Do you think they were training James, or training Jack Hodges, to be the fall guy in this, to be the patsy in this, like, um, here's what happens. 
he does the dirty work, Richard Jennings dies, and we and we basically get the land and we live happily ever after. Worst thing that happens is Richard Jennings gets is killed. They go, uh oh, who killed him? Well, I saw that black guy with the musket nearby. So therefore, it's got to be Jack Hodges. And then Jack Hodges says, well, these other four people told me to go do this. And then the other four people go, we have no idea what he's talking about. We're out of this. And then Jack Hodges gets the gallows on his own. Do you think that that was at all part of this as a, at all? Yeah, so let me, let me tackle a couple of points on that. So I always found it curious that Hodges claims that, that James Teed had to show him how to to use a musket. You know, Jack Hodges was much older, too. He, he's an older gentleman. He spent almost his entire life as a sailor at sea. In fact, he was described basically as the, the stereotypical wicked sailor who, you know, indulged in every vice that a wicked sailor could ever indulge in. Mm-hmm. So so I found it a little hard to, to grapple with that he didn't know how to use a musket. Right. Um, in 1818, I think most people, that was an essential piece of your survival, hunting, you know, things like that. But that's neither here nor there. I think that no matter how well accepted Jack Hodges may have been within the community, that they will rely upon the fact that if this falls apart, if we kill him and this plot is uncovered, one, they're not going to believe him because he is an African-American, and two, they're not going to take his word over our word. Right. So even if they don't believe him, they're really not going to take you know, African-Americans word over our word, especially the, the Teeds were a pretty well-known family, the Conklings, right. an extremely well-known family. So, you know, I think that was a lot of it. Right. And so, and then ultimately, and let's, let's actually jump, jump into the murder. Um, and I was wondering if you can kind of explain a little bit about what happened from where it was like David Dunning, Jack Hodges, we're sitting in the uh, we're sitting in a cat or sitting in somebody's home, and they saw Richard Jennings walk by as he would go from place to place type of thing. Right. So on the morning of the murder, James Teed is in New York City with a with a friend assisting on a real estate deal, and they're in the the Teed residence, and it's David Dunning, Jack Hodges, and Hannah Teed. Now Hannah Teed had been basically plying Jack with with liquor. Right. keeping his courage up. And on this morning, um, G- Richard Jennings had been in the habit of walking up to check the lot because what the what the Dunnings and the Teeds and the Conklings had been doing is they were going up and taking wood from the lot. Right. And then, So every day, Richard Jennings would go up to see what they'd done. And on this morning, they see him walking. And basically, Hannah's like, now's your chance. You know, the devil has to be killed. Jack says he falters, but Hannah gives him some more liquor. And then the official record says David Dunning leaves to catch up to Richard Jennings and walk with him. Mm-hmm. And then while Richard Jennings and Jack, uh, David Dunning walk to this woodlot, Jack takes a you know back way around, cuts up, and waits for them, and sneaks up on him in the woodlot. And at that moment, you know Richard Jennings sees Jack Hodges. He's got the musket in his hand, and he asks Jack if it's loaded, which I always find to be an interesting. <laughs> comment to make as he's pointing a rifle at you um, and then he, Jack pulls the trigger, it hits Mr. Jennings he falls backwards the problem is he's not dead it right. basically grazed his ear 
took right. off part of his ear, knocked his hat off, knocked them on his backside, but didn't kill him. Right. So Jack claims, and this is, and, and I'll say this is what the official record says. This is what came out through the courts, not what I think happened. Okay. But Jack says he froze. David Dunning grabs the musket and beats Jennings about the head till he dies. Oh wow. And then they pick up as many pieces of the broken musket that they do that they can, and they leave them there. And so lights, a light snow is falling, and they just sort of leave. Right, right. And they, which, frankly, is not very smart because they more or less leave the body there instead of disposing of it. Yeah, no, no attempt to to conceal the crime. Uh, Jennings. You know, is missed in town for a few days, which no one, again, initially thinks is too suspicious. Right. But after about a week, there's whispers that he was killed. And interestingly, the rumors were that it was Jack Hodges that did it, which makes me think someone was putting these rumors out there, probably the Teeds and the Conklings. Right. So they send Jack to New York City to get on a boat. They basically say, look, here's a note. I know this guy who owns a boat. Go and ask him to get on a boat and get out of town. Right. And they sent a search party out to find him for Jennings. And, of course, the first place they look is the woodlot. Right. And certainly there he is. He's dead. And he had actually crawled quite a distance after they had left him for dead. So even after being shot and being beaten, Ugh. he didn't die right away. He, he tried to, you know, crawl to, to get help. So he was a tough old guy. Right, right. I yeah. Mean, but, you know, so that just sets everything in motion. Now right. we have a murder. Everybody knows the animosity between the parties. You know, this is going to unravel very quickly. Right. Now, let's – okay, I, I feel like we're watching one of those movies where you actually see the narrator saying one thing, but then it's playing out differently in the movie itself. Let's go back a little bit. Based on everything that you have done, based on the research and based on everything that you have done, how would you, what do you think happened? And again, this is all guess. Nobody, nobody is being held to anything, even if, you, even if it turns out that it's wrong. We get to the other side, and it wasn't Jack Hodges, but it was actually Hannah Teed that came around and did this, say, or something like that. What was it that... What do you think actually happened? So I think that the murder happened the way it, it went down. However, I think it was Jack Hodges that committed the entire crime. Later in life, Jack becomes quite a celebrity mm-hmm. up in upstate New York, a very religious figure. Right. And he recounts the murder on different occasions. And he gives various versions, but the version he tends to give most is, he was actually sleeping up in the woodlot when he saw Richard Jennings and David Dunning and had the gun with him sleeping there waiting. So he completely leaves out the initial story that they're all kind of hanging out at the teed house and they see him walk by. Um, I think David Dunning had zero participation in any murder for hire, any plot to kill him. Right. He had no motivation to kill him. He, there was no animosity between them. In fact, Jennings told him, I'll probably let you continue renting and living where you are, basically. Right. So Dunning had nothing to lose, theoretically, 
other than the teeds being thrown out of the house, but him and his small family would have been okay. Right. But here's the thing, though. Here's the one big part of all of this. I would almost compare Dunning to um, John Surratt if you were to look at the Lincoln killing. And if you under... I imagine... Uh, have you ever done up uh, any reading on everybody that was involved with the Lincoln ex- uh, with the Lincoln assassination? Many, many years ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, the thing was, Mary Surratt um, had all of these people staying in her house, and meetings were held in her house. Whether some people... Some people... She's got her detractors that say, yeah, she was very much a part of the assassination. And then other people that said they just happened to be staying at her house. That was it. And and John Surratt was out of town when all of this occurred. And he was not, like, ultimately he was arrested, but not until, like, the turn of the century. Or, or no, I think he was arrested somewhere in, like, the 1870s or something like that, but was ultimately let go for it. It... I kind of get the feeling that David Dunning is almost like the John Surratt of this, where even though he had no animosity to he had no animosity to Richard Jennings, he still hung out with the people that were actually having serious conversations and taking serious steps to kill Richard Jennings. Like, he had to have known that Hodges was getting musket training, or he had to have known all of this stuff was happening underway, much the same way that John Surratt had to have known what, uh, what, uh, did, oh goodness, why did, uh, um, oh, why did his name, John Wilkes Booth, John Wilkes Booth and everybody associated with him was planning in the Surratt household. I do find that interesting because if he had no animosity and he's hanging out with these guys, why in the world didn't he just step up to the plate and go, guys, we need to do something about this. Or, hey, Mr. Jennings, do me a favor. What do you say you drop the lawsuit and just kind of keep to yourself and have nothing to do with anybody anymore? Or he goes down to the local uh, constabulary and basically says, uh, or he goes to the sheriff, just want to give you a heads up. Some guys I know are planning to kill somebody. I like these people. I don't want them to be arrested for murder and then ultimately executed. Why didn't he step up to the plate to do something like that? Well, it, it raises some interesting questions. You know, there's there's some big lingering question marks over whether or not there was ever a big conspiracy to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the arguments that was in their defense was that we never conspired and that Jack Hodges did this on his own. He, he knows we didn't like him. We certainly wish we could kill him, but we would never do that because we know the penalty for killing is hanging. Right. Um, and that Jack completely did this on his own and then is basically blaming everybody else, making this big elaborate story up. I don't know that Jack made it up. I don't know how much David Dunning was really involved in any planning. I think David Dunning was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and ultimately paid a really high price for it. Mm. Gotcha. Well, anyway, just to kind of make a long story short and go through the trial, uh, Mrs. Dunning was, or, or sorry, Mrs. Teed was pregnant at the time, and I was going to say, according to what you said, 
it appeared she got away with murder. Uh, Linda mentioned that she pled the belly or something, as was said in England. And they basically said, okay, let's change the plea a little bit so that we give her 30 days in jail. And then that way, because James Teed was ultimately found guilty and he was going to be executed. Because, am I correct, that was the only punishment you could have for uh, murder. There was no life in prison. It was, oh, you killed a guy, we find you guilty of murder, hang him. Yeah, so at the time in 1819 when they go to trial, the penalty for murder and also for conspiracy to commit murder before the fact Mm -hmm. were both punishable by death. So Jack Hodges... He's indicted for murder. He's also indicted for the conspiracy before and after the fact. Um, he's the first one to go on trial. He's right. the only one that gives a confession. So he's found guilty. And then he's the state's evidence against everybody else. He testifies against all the other participants. So in 1819, an African-American man is testifying in court against white people. Right. And, and they're taking his word... Seriously, I think that says a lot about the person of Jack Hodges. Now, they try Teed and Conkling. They separately. They try them separately. Right. And Teed's found guilty. Conkling's found guilty. They're going to try Hannah Teed. She's also indicted for accessory before and after the fact. Right. But by this time, you now have three people that are going to be condemned to death. Right. You haven't gotten to David Dunning yet, but it's they they know where that's going. Right. So. I don't think the people of Orange County, I don't think anybody at that point in time had the stomach to hang a woman, let alone a pregnant woman with a bunch of kids whose husband's going to hang. So they allow her to withdraw her not guilty plea to accessory before or after the fact. I'm sorry. Right. So she pleads guilty to murder, accessory to murder after the fact, which is not punishable by death. Right. And then... The court, the prosecutor on the on record says, we decline to prosecute her on the other counts. Thereby, the court is able to later her later just sentence her to jail time, and she escapes the gallows. Right. So. Gotcha. However, though, it uh, we will say this though. Um, can we jump to the end of Hannah Teet's life because it, this is one of these things where karma may have caught up to her if do you, let, let me ask do you believe the story that Jack Hodges told do you believe that she was part of this as well do you believe that she was actually like yeah you know what go kill him this would be a good thing I'm sure that she made a lot of statements to the effect that she wishes she was dead she wishes someone would kill him right I have, I have no doubt I don't know how much she intentionally told Jack Hodges to go do it right but You know, she doesn't live a very happy life. Um, She's described as basically going insane. Mm. And she ends up uh, drowning herself in the Hudson River a few years later. Right. And two of her kids don't exactly, two of the the teed kids don't exactly end things on a positive note either, if I'm correct. Um, Not a lot's written about them. They were adopted out by local families or raised by local families. Right. And they just sort of disappear into history. It's kind of odd. Um, you know, not a lot's written about them. They had, she had a lot of kids. They had a lot of family. So right. in theory, in Orange County, there's probably teed descendants, like direct descendants of, right. of James. 
Right. I've just never met one. <laughs> right. Well, I thought it was mentioned that one of them um, committed suicide and another was executed himself for a murder as well. No, that's I don't recall that. Okay, then I must have misheard that then. Okay. That was on me. I thought that was mentioned very quick quickly after after T after Teed's death or something like that. Um that's on me. That's fine. Um and I'm sure somebody listening to it will probably point that out where I got it wrong. I'm okay. That just means everybody's listening closer to to both uh, episodes, and I'm okay well, well, with that. Well, the problem, Don, is when I know you're like me, is you, you get your hand in so many different murders. Yeah. After a while, they start becoming one giant case. Right, right. <laughs> I, right. I've had it happen where it's like, no, that, that wasn't that one. Right, it's, exactly. There's yeah. just so many. You just you really they become such a part of your life. It's right, exactly. Really bizarre. Yeah, exactly. When I'm when I'm ever talking about a murder with somebody that is covers several murders, I always have to go like, let me go back to the 50 facts about the case so that that the person was talking about so that they can go back and go, oh yeah, that's right, I remember that now. And then and then we go into a bit of a discussion about the murder itself. Gotcha. So. And ultimately, though, T, um, as I read at the beginning, Teed, uh, James Teed and Dunning were ultimately condemned and they were executed. What happened to David Conkling and James Hod- and Jack Hodges? So after the trials, now I want to make a comment here. During the trials, Jack Hodges, of course, is witness star witness for the prosecution. Right. And at that time, it was a pretty well-known fact that if an accomplice to a crime like this testified um, against their co-conspirators, they would typically be spared the gallows. Right. And the defense attorneys for Teed, Dunning, and Conkling try to really shatter Jack's credibility by saying, you know, you've been told if you testify, you'll be saved, you have a reason to lie. Jack says, nope, I've never been offered any promises. His lawyer says, nope, no one's made any promises. The judge, nope, no one's made him any promises. Well, the four men are convicted. The four men are sentenced to death. Jack actually gets the added indignity of having his body sent for dissection right. because he was a black man in 1819. Um, so what happens right after all this? The judge writes to the governor and asks for a conditional pardon for Jack Hodges because okay. of his testimony. So the thing that everybody says was never going to happen happens right after the trial. Right. Um, now, I believe they didn't tell Jack that, right. I'm sure, but a conditional pardon meaning basically, look, I don't think this guy should hang, but I also don't think he should be free. Right. Send him to send him to jail. So the governor at this time didn't have the power to commute a sentence. The legislature right. had that power. So the legislature now considers the pardon of Jack Hodges. But what I found interesting was they also then add in David Conkling. Mm-hmm. They add David or James Teed in. And there's various votes about who should or shouldn't be included in this pardon with Jack right. Hodges. Um, James Teed falls very short of getting a pardon. I hope he didn't know how close he came Oof. because it would be horrible. But in the end... The legislature decides to pardon Jack Hodges and David Conkling. So they're given, you know, prison terms of hard labor. Gotcha. Now, yeah. let, is the, let me ask this, though. Is the implication that um, – is the implication that 
Hodges came forward and said, look, you're going to execute me. And if you're going to get, or like, if you give me a pardon, I want my buddy David Conkling in on this. Would you, do you, is there kind of like the implication that he was negotiating with them or like, how did that come about? Like, why was Conkling in on it? And, and not, uh, and not like David Dunn or even James Teed himself. So I think, I don't think Jack, Jack had any knowledge of the, of the pardon. I think what happened was if I had to speculate and this is speculation, 1819, the legislature was reluctant to just pardon an African-American man who sent potentially three men to the gallows who were white without throwing in a white man. I I think that was ultimately the real reason behind it. I think it was just that we're not going to just pardon. And also, I think it was like this, if there was any influence from the, from the, you know, lawyers in the court, it would have been, you know, you can't make this look like we're just pardoning him because we're rewarding his testimony. Right. I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, I don't know why they picked Conkling over Teed. Again, Conkling was from a, a good family. His wife was from a very well-respected Monroe, New York right. family. So, you know, there's actually in the book I print a newspaper ad that it was alleged it was because he was a Mason. Right. And that there was a Masonic conspiracy. Oh, but, Lord. So the Masons, the local Masonic lodges, had to take out ads to say he's never a member, he's never been a member, and we're not involved in any conspiracy to get him yeah. off. Yeah, we're too busy planning out the next 20 presidencies. Enjoy it's the FDR. Funny. Yeah, enjoy the FDR guy. We, we're that yeah. good. So. so, but, you know, so ultimately, I don't know why David Dunning's never considered he's the least culpable of all of them. Right. Um. And I'm not even sure James T. deserved to hang. Uh, right. You know, I don't. I don't know. Again, we have to rely upon a lot of what Jack Hodges said, and I think there's issues with his credibility early on in this case that that make me uncomfortable with sending men to the gallows based upon that. Right. Now, let me just ask this, just for argument's sake. Let's just say that all of these guys were guilty, okay? Just so that I can parse an understanding of the law. Um. Going again with, let's just say, with all of this, David Dunning and Jack Hodges both kill Richard Jennings. Then they turn around, and David Conkling knows nothing about this. However, they need they decide, hey, we're going to go bury his body, and we need some help. And they go get David Conkling to do it. Or they bring David Conkling with them. The three of them dig up, dig a hole, put Richard Jennings in it, put cover it up blah 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 they get away with it until something happens they get arrested would David Conkling have been given the gallows uh, for being a part of that or would he have just been given a prison sentence because he was he was an accessory or a conspiracy after the fact right so if they could just prove his involvement after the fact it would have been a non-death penalty offense and he would have been just subject to an incarceration term, right? Just so, like Han- just like they did for Hannah, basically. Gotcha. So okay, so that way they would have known that that way. Uh, that's how that works. So if like if I sit there and I was gonna say to someone, I don't like Mr. Jones. Let's you and I go kill Mr. Jones, and then Mr. Jones is found dead. 
or, or like Ian, or I say like, I don't like Mr. Jones, let's kill Mr. Jones. And I pay somebody a hundred bucks to go kill Mr. Jones, even though I was nowhere near there, I would still be culpable and be able, and I would still be sentenced to the gallows. If it turned out like the murderer says, well, Don Smith paid me a hundred bucks to go kill Mr. Jones. Right. Yeah. And, and it's important. I, I think it's, I want to reemphasize that at this point in time, mm-hmm. the judges didn't have discretion on the sentencing. It was, right. that's all they could do. So sometimes you'll hear judges referred to as they were a hanging judge, you know? Right. Well, but, and in most of those cases, it's because the judge had no alternative. They didn't have another legal option other than to sentence someone to death. And then what those judges would do if they felt they were entitled to mercy, they would then write to either the legislature or the governor and say, hey, listen, I think this person is worthy of a, a commutation, a pardon, whatever it is. Right. And nine times out of ten, if the judge, or the governor doesn't have to listen to the judge, like the governor could say, yeah, no, I, I'm not interested. Let them let hang. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Gotcha. Absolutely. So – so ultimately, Conkling and Hodges, they go to jail, do hard time. However, for whatever reason, the two of them are both released. Am I correct on that? Yeah, so David Conkling, they both start out their prison terms in Newgate down in New York City. Right. It's in the Greenwich Village area today. And Newgate was a, a hellish place. It was overcrowded, disease-ridden. The legislature built two new prisons in the 1820s, one in Mount Pleasant, New York, Mm-hmm. which is still in operation today. It's called Sing Sing. Yep, my cousin was executed there. Yes, he was. We've talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, to think the original Sing Sing's been in operation that long, and that is where David Conkling goes. Right. Jack Hodges is sent to the new prison up in Auburn, New York, which is still there. Right. Uh, now, Jack serves just about uh, a little less than 10 years of his prison sentence, and he's given a pardon um, Conkling is pardoned also relatively early. He's in poor health, though. I right. think that had a lot to do with it. Um, he lives in Monroe, New York, and, you know, he dies peacefully in the 1840s. Jack is pardoned, I think, largely because he becomes a celebrity right. while he's in Auburn prison. His, his story is remarkable. If I could meet one person from this case and sit down and talk to them, it would be Jack Hodges. Right, um, right. And he, I feel a connection to him more than anybody else in this case. I feel like I know Jack. Um, you know, like the first time when I went up to visit where he's buried, it, it felt like I was visiting the grave of a friend or a family oh, member. Interesting. You know, it wasn't like, okay, this guy was involved. This, it, it actually was a, an emotional moment for a moment. Like, oh, this is Jack Hodges here. Right. Um, you know, he becomes a celebrity. He teaches himself to read with the Bible. Right. Um, because that's all you were allowed in prison. You worked, you were in your cell, you weren't really allowed to talk to other inmates, you were given a Bible. That's why they called them penitentiaries. You're supposed to be penitent. Right. And he teaches himself to read. He has this remarkable moment that he describes almost as if it's a supernatural experience where he's overcome with this religious wave and, and suddenly realizes you know, the wicked life he's led, the godless life and how he mm. converts. And people start to travel from all over to come see him in his jail cell to mm. talk to him. And so when he's released, he gets released. He actually lives for a time at the Auburn Seminary, the theological seminary. Right. 
And there was a rumor, a lot of rumors or myths had been associated with this case in Orange County for a long time. One of them being that he lived in the home of um, Samuel S. Seward. Right, related to um, John Seward, who ironically, everything goes back to the Lincoln conspiracy. Or, or Seward, right, the Secretary of State. Yeah, Seward. yeah, and who was almost killed that night. Yes. <laughs> so, now, gosh. interestingly, his father was Samuel S. Seward, a doctor, right. who was also involved in the trial as the doctor that examined Richard Jennings' body. Yes, yes. And Samuel Seward was married to... Richard Jennings' other sister. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you mention the one final mind-blowing piece of uh, of full circle, uh, what a coincidence, and I say that in quotes, that occurred with this case about who, not just the go- not just the future governor, but a steward. And I was wondering if you could talk about that steward real quick. Um, which one would that, I mean, we had the... Well, one of you mean the prosecutor in the case that came down? No, 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 not not. Oh no, not him. Um, I thought the steward was a nephew of Richard Jennings. Yeah, that he yeah. ultimately lives with. So it's kind of like. Well, so what's interesting was that was one of the rumors that he lived up in the home of um, Lincoln's future secretary. Right. But what happened was that was a, a misunderstanding of the facts because. When Jack is released from prison, he lives in the home of the steward of the Auburn Theological Seminary. Right. So what happens is, is over time, these these facts got sort of mixed up into legends, and that legends got repeated as facts. So the the accounts, the early accounts that I found of this incident were laden with historical inaccuracies. Okay. So it took me a long time to really unravel. Of the truths, and um, you know, even the legends surrounding the the burials of Teed and Dunning that stakes were driven into the graves. Right. Yeah. To prevent uh, vampires. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it probably never happened. You know, there's no evidence it happened. That's for sure. Right. But you know, Jack's journey is just, um, you know, after Auburn, he moves to Canandaigua, New York, and he lives in the home um, of an elderly woman named Harriet Martin. He lives in does her work. He sort of is her groundskeeper. He becomes a member of the first congregational church. And he's not just a member. He is a fully accepted member of the white community. He is often, you know, talks about that he doesn't associate with the African-American community. Right. Um, At that time, African-Americans were still segregated in the church. They had their own section. Jack yeah. did not. Jack did not sit in that section. Jack sat in the rented pews, in the main gallery, you know, main right. church floor, with the rest of the white people. I actually got to sit where he sat last year when I was up there in Canandaigua. Unbelievable. Uh, he would minister to families. So if a family was in spiritual crisis, they would send Jack Hodges. So That's they have an African American man in the 1830s. Ministering to white families in crisis. Oh, wow, that's hilarious. So, to me, what this really tells me is Jack had to have been just a remarkable man. Right. And I can only imagine, he, he must have been charismatic, he, he must have just had a personality which attracted people, because he really defied the racial right. um, stereotypes and, you know, segregation of the time. Um, his death in 1843... You know, they talk about 
every prominent man from all around came to his funeral. Gotcha. He was buried in the cemetery in the not in the African American section. Right. He was buried amongst the prominent members of Canandaigua. And a right. huge and there's a big monument that was erected over his grave. You know, unheard of things for just the average African American in the eighteen forties or eighteen thirties, you know. Right. Let me ask though, and this is the million dollar question with all of this. Do you think Jack Hodge's change of life, his change in perspective, was legitimate? Yes. I think he truly underwent a conversion in prison. I think he really found that spirituality. Now, his motivation may have been because he was much more culpable in the crime than he led Mm -hmm. others on to be. And it might have been because potentially men went to the gallows that shouldn't have went to the gallows right? based upon his testimony. But I believe that his conversion, there was no faking it. Um, You know, there certainly was... I don't think he's a he was a smart man. There's no right. doubt he was uneducated, but he was extremely intelligent. Right. And you know, I really believe that he he was genuine in his his religious conversion. I mean, you know, his his knowledge of the Bible and his ability to minister to people. I don't think that's something that can be faked. Right. Without right. without without other people of of religious knowledge, you know, men with theological degrees of the time. Not having, you know, kind of like caught on like, yeah, this guy's kind of pulling our legs here. Yeah. Um, I think he was a genuinely religious. He he found God. He found Jesus. And he I think he was repenting in his own way for what he had done. Right. I was going to say, though, when um, his conversion was discussed, it reminded me an awful lot. If you've ever done any research on um, Bill W., who is one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he talks about his spiritual experience. Like it, it's it's almost it's a very surreal. Like 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 there's something spiritual, physical that happens to you. It's like you realize, oh my gosh, something occurs, and then it completely changes you as a person. And that's what a lot of like the way it was described, like why I think it was a genuine, why I think it was genuine as well. And I'm always one of those people that I like to err on the side of, if someone says that they're a person of faith, I like to err on the side of, yeah, that that really happened. Of, And I try to do it in an intelligent way so as not to be um, duped by it. But everything I've read, if he was not who he claimed to be, something would have occurred between the 1820s and his death in 1843, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he would have been able to fake it. Um, you know, I think his his conversion was just too authentic. And to me, it's it's at least a little bit of redemption at the end of this story because really, there's no winners. You know, the Teeds, the Dunnings, you know, the Conklings, all these families suffered immensely. And for Hodges, at least to have turned his life in a different direction and spent those last years of his life um, as a positive influence upon how many others is, you know, the fact that they still remember him in Canandaigua today. Yeah. I mean, that's remarkable that they're still, you know, not everybody may know who he is, but there's a lot of people 
who still know the name Jack Hodges up in Canandaigua, mm-hmm. uh, which is remarkable. I mean, there was probably no one in Orange County that knew about this case until I rediscovered it. Right. And actually, that was <laughs> going to lead me to my next uh, my next question. How did you get involved with this case? Like, what was it? What was it that attracted you to it? How did you find out about it? So, I was researching, and one of the cases I've been working on for several years is um, the 1827 murder at Cherry Hill in Albany, New York. Mm-hmm. And that was a love triangle murder. And to make a long story short, the co-conspirator was a female, and they decided that the the male conspirator could not testify against her. And in the judge's dis- written decision, that's what I was reading, he references the Orange County case in 1819 mm. and, you know, talks about the men condemned and this murder for hire. And, of course, I, I'm reading it thinking, wait a minute, I've never heard of this. Right. So I, you know, let me let me put this aside and just let me peek. That's what I always say. I was going to peek at this case. That peek took, you know, five years of research. Right. Uh, because when I read it, that's when I started reading about, you know, Martin Van Buren prosecuted the case, you know. Yeah. Jack, one of the men, had a monument in his honor in Canandaigua. The men, they drove stakes through their graves. I mean, I just started reading all these things like – And that's not even the most exciting aspect of it. Cough, cough, <laughs> galvanization, cough, cough, Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. And, we'll yeah, leave they... that. and you know what? I'm not going to mention what that is. I'm going to tantalize people to find out about that in the book. And, and they should definitely not just read it in my book, but read about that in general. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's great, though. <laughs> but, you know, and that's what, what happens. And, again, I know you're a writer and you kind of understand this 100%. It's so easy to get pulled in 50 directions. Um, but to me, that's half the fun of these researching these yeah. old cases. You never know what you're going to find. You never know where they're going to lead. And it's the thrill of the hunt. Yeah, because the other thing that's so great about it is is that you'll, like, do six different cases, but weirdly come back to one aspect of every case when you're doing research in that case. Like, yes. you'll find out that, like, the prosecutor of case number one actually was the de- uh, would later have a son that was the defense attorney in case number two, who finds out that the sister of the victim in case number two is actually the villain in case number three type of thing it's it's absolutely it's amazing how that how that all works out and everything and one thing i want to also mention is and i know you you looked at the book you read it um when i wrote it i I grappled with how do i want to do this and Mm. i ended up i ended up making it very thoroughly noted right because what i found myself asking was if someone were to read this story how are they going to know what I'm telling them is true or not just repeating what somebody else said? So that's early on. I decided if I'm going to do this, it's going to be thoroughly documented and noted. So if I assert a fact, I'm going to tell someone why I assert that you can look up the end note. You can see where I got that source. Um, I actually last year when I went up to Canandaigua, I was invited up by a retired school superintendent who was fascinated by Jack Hodges and, his compliment to me when he after he read my book was he said it was so thoroughly researched and endnoted it was more like a doctoral dissertation. <laughs> like, wow, that's awesome. And and I took that as a compliment because, uh, as you know, documenting is a lot of work. Yeah, keeping that, your sources straight and uh, that's it was see, so much. <laughs> that's one of the hardest things about writing a true crime book like this is every like you 
see, if you're writing a fictional book, it's just straightforward, and then he ran from the monster, and then he dove behind the car, and he picked up a gun, and he pointed it at the monster and began to open fire. Now, if, God forbid, this was the if there was a real monster, we would have to go, now, according to the Daily News, November 15th, 1926, the monster chased the guy down the street. However, the New York Times in 1956 claimed that he dove behind the car before he picked up right. the gun like that. And it's like you've got to go back and check that, which makes these things a pain in the neck sometimes. Yeah, and, you, and you'll notice, too, you know, newspaper articles don't always agree. And what I found is, and not just in this case, but a lot of the other old cases, stories would be reprinted. So they would take a story from one source right. and just it would be reprinted all over the country and not always word for word. So it was important not just to take, if I could find one newspaper article, I always tried to find something to corroborate that article. Right. Because even if it was contemporaneous to the case, let me see it, you know, unless it's, you know, like I'm working on this Port Jervis case. So the articles from the Port Jervis papers tend to be more accurate than the papers, say, from Connecticut, Kansas, Missouri, yeah. that are writing about it. Because they're just taking the information from the Port Jervis or even the New York City articles, which tend to be very accurate because they right. sent the reporters up to Port Jervis to actually write it. Right. But, you know, it's it's this documentation, and I learned a lot about, about that aspect of, of the research, and it's really paid off because working on this case, the Port Jervis case that I'm working on for now, just to kind of like you know, you know, tease your audience a little bit. Right. Is going to be very controversial. Ooh. It's been somewhat inaccurately documented since it happened. And a lot of the facts were not necessarily reported correctly. And a lot of the facts I've discovered have never been reported. Oh, wow. At least since, since it happened. So it's going to be quite interesting when it's published. And that is why I have been dotting my I's, crossing my T's, and noting it and noting it and end noting it because I don't want anybody to criticize my credibility in what I'm asserting as being a fact. If, if they're going to criticize anything, they're going to have to follow all the evidence first. Right. Well, at the on very, their own. Right. I was going to say, though, at the very least, though, if they are going to criticize, might I suggest that they not go speeding anywhere near Port Jervis? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. No, I would never do that. But yeah. So. It's just basically like here's my here's the work, and that's how I presented the the Richard Jennings case. Right. This is this is what I've concluded. I was very clear in the book if I speculated on something, like this is my opinion or this is speculation. You know if. if I can't back that up with fact. That's all it is. It's an opinion or it's speculation. Right. If, if I believe it to be a fact, as we can prove today, here's the reason why, here's the source. You can right. go to that source yourself. And I always tell people, and I'm, I can't wait to use this on the next book when it comes out in Fort Jervis. Listen, you're welcome to verify my sources. I have copies of all of them, but I'm not going to give them to you because I had to work to get them. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want them... Come You're going to do the work to get them because I have spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of legwork to track down some of these sources. And so right. you're welcome to get them, but <laughs> right. you're going to have to do it on your own. Right, exactly, exactly. One last question then with everything going on. When did you start working on this book? Like when did you decide, oh, wow, I need to start writing this book, and when was the book officially finished? So the Richard Jennings book I started at the end of 2009, the research, mm -hmm. and 
by 2013, I had almost 99% of the stuff I needed. And my wife was saying, I think you're ready. I think you have enough for this book. And I'm like, yeah. And then the Orange County Historical Society called me and had heard I was working on this and said, listen, our annual dinner is in October. We'd like you to come speak about this. And um, is your book going to be done? Because that'd be a great time to launch it. So I committed to it and said, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I had to finish it. So I had to actually sit down. It was great. Of course, after the book came out, I did get additional information, which drives me crazy. Right. Um, but it's not enough to redo the book yet, I don't think. Um, and like you, I'm always I'm always going back online. I'm always looking for new information. Right. Because you never know what's going to be added. I'm still trying to track down court records if they're available um, because it's truly never done. Right. It's done up till 2013. Um, that's all. Everything else since then, you know, there's going to be new information and it will be re redone with uh, updated at right. some point. Now I got to ask though, like with the book that you have published without having I mean unless there's like a sixth conspirator that turns out was a part of all of this, I imagine that other than just the occasional uh, slight discrepancy that doesn't really matter in the long term of things, would you just kind of add an addendum to the book or something like that or would you go and redo the whole thing all over again no it would be like an appendix because to redo it would throw off my end noting it would throw off my indexing which i am not re-indexing that book right right <laughs> so i would do an appendix and, and the information doesn't really justify a whole new addition it's um you know i just i found the original will right the wording of the will i found the court records on what happened to the teed children, where they right. went after the the mother died. You know, um, I found out where David Conkling lived when he was in Monroe after his his release from prison. So it's small historically relevant stuff, but not enough to to throw off an entire book. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like again, as opposed to if you found like the secret confessions of Jack Hodges, there was right. a sixth person in this, and. Uh, it turned out it was the secret love, like, you know, like they find out that, that uh, Jack Hodges and Mrs. Teed had a love child or something crazy like that. Right. And it's like, right. whoa, wait, where did this come from? That type of thing. Yeah, so. that would definitely, I would be willing to re-index the book, but um, yeah, it's, uh, the process of indexing and endnoting and, and, and double-checking all of that was so, I think it took me longer to index and verify all my endnotes than it did to write the whole book. Right, yeah, because that's the part that would drive a man to drink. Speaking yes. of uh, Bill W. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway. And it, and it almost drove my wife to drink because, you know, I'm, I'm asking her to also be a second set of eyes. And fortunately, you know, our, our common friend Linda Zimmerman. Yes. Um, her and her husband Bob, great resource and you know, looking over the book and editing it, being that extra set of eyes, because, you know, when you look at something enough of your own, you overlook things. Right, exactly. Other uh, people see it, it jumps out at them. Right, exactly. I got to tell you, though, when you mentioned that your wife was kind of, it would drive your wife to drink. My wife right now, she just, for no reason, just started punching the air, going, yes, yes, that's what I'm <laughs> talking about. I, one time, when I was doing the Gothel Road murders, had our entire apartment. It looked like one of those, like, conspiracy theory crime scenes where you've got, like, or 
where like all the newspaper articles are hanging up and all the tape is hanging out and you've got like lines of yarn connecting from one person to the next. <laughs> and Laura came home one day and saw that and she just about turned around and just said, yeah, I'm packing a bag and staying with mom till this is over. <laughs> so, um, it, it, God bless her. That's all I can say. <laughs> God bless yeah, no, you. And, and, and my wife is always, you know, fortunately she keeps me grounded because she'll tell me, listen, how much more do you think you need for this before you're done? Yeah. And, and I, because my attitude is, what if there's one more thing? And you know how that is. That, yeah. It's that little carrot dangling in the distance that you just don't know. And it's there's no one alive to talk to on most of these cases. No, no, it's not. There really isn't. And add to the fact that if you can't talk to someone that is that has been associated with this case or understands about the history of the area, you at least want to talk to somebody that has written a book similar in nature, just so you can kind of go, Oh my gosh, I need someone to commiserate with. And a lot of times history writers like us don't have that. And because the loved ones in our lives are busy taking care of the house and making sure everything is in a place where it needs to be. So uh, people talk about football widows, but there's such a thing as history writer widows, and uh, there's going to be a special place in heaven for them. If you <laughs> oh, if yeah, you my wife my wife deserves a medal. My, 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 my three sons, the two oldest ones, of course, deserve a medal because I'll talk to them about these cases as if they care. Right. And they'll usually roll their eyes and be like, Dad, do we, we don't care. But, um, okay. but they're actually... They're pretty smart and will actually have some good thoughts and opinions for me, too, though. Right. True story. True story. My wife and I, for my day job, we went to a dinner. We went to a dinner. It was me and a bunch of coworkers went to dinner, and I work in the education system. And my wife came and hung out with me at my job. She was allowed to do that because it never happened. She hung out with me at my job met all of the different teachers I work with on a regular basis, met my coworkers uh, also, and at least two or three women walked up to my wife and said, oh my, you're married to Don, you have got to be a saint. And it was three <laughs> people that never, that have no connection with each other sitting there saying that to my wife, and I just am like... Okay, well, guess who's not getting Christmas cards this year? But at the same time, I went, yeah, she is. I've always joked with people and said I married up. So, anyway, Michael, I can't even begin to thank you for your time tonight. You have just been so generous with it, and I have absolutely enjoyed this conversation. And if people want a copy of the book, it is available at michaeljwarden.com. Am I correct? Yep, you can get it at my website, direct through me. It's also on, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online stores, but if you get it through me, it's um, quicker, and I'll sign it for them. <laughs> right, exactly. And um, and the other thing is, is that you have a publishing imprint called Sisu Press or our Sisu.com, Sisu Publications. Sisu Books, yes. Okay, can I ask where did that come from? Where where Sisu came from? S I S U. So Sisu is a Finnish word. Oh, okay. Um, and it's uh, a Finnish word, which means basically it, it describes an attitude of the Finnish people of fortitude, perseverance, um, nice. pressing forward in the face of overwhelming odds. Um, it's very hard to quantify in English. And in, in 2007, without going into detail, I was involved in a, um, in a deadly force encounter in my job. Mm-hmm. And it really, um, I've always been in love with Finland. I, I've been there eight times now. Right. And after that, that um, 
that thought of, of perseverance and, and moving on in the face of, of overwhelming odds really touched me personally because of that. And so when I decided to self-publish and, and start, you know, getting my own ISBNs and, and the whole process. Right. And I thought that was the word to me that really spoke the most about the, the life-changing event, but also moving forward in the face of all of that and continuing on. Oh, very cool. Well, that is exactly what you have done, and we are really impressed with it. Um, Michael, once again, thank you so much, and a wonderful job on the Richard Jennings story. Thank you. It has been a blast, and I've really enjoyed uh, kind of taking a step back in time about 200 years ago and just experiencing what life was like for back then. So, Michael, thank you once again for oh, being thank a part you. of this. And once again, everybody, thank you for being a part of uh, Conversations of the Strange. Have a great day, and see you on our next episode. Welcome to Conversations of the Strange. Conversations of the Strange.